What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and very excited to welcome everyone to 2021. Hopefully, it is much better than 2020 as we're getting vaccines rolled out, and hopefully, all of you are safe or at least as safe as you possibly can be. Thank you so much for what you do and how you do it. So we're going to be talking a little bit about tax on this show today, and I'm going to try to make it as fun as we possibly can. I promise you that is something that we tried to do on the Financial Residency Podcast. If you are new to listening to the podcast, welcome to our community. Excited to have you here. You can join along with us in our community by going to financialresidency.com slash community. I know, super clever. And if you've been around a long time, thank you so much. This has just been an amazing ride and it's so excited to have you guys still here with us, learning a ton about personal finance and really understanding how all these things interrelate in your personal finances. Before we jump in, want to make sure that we talk about the important disclaimer because I don't know you or anything about you and that's okay. But that means that please don't take advice from me on the show. This is for entertainment purposes only, despite it probably being horrible entertainment. But hey, you're here. I appreciate that. But please, it's educational only. This is not specific financial planning or tax advice. Now, this episode is sponsored by our fee-only financial planning firm, Physician Wealth Services. If you're looking for working with a fee-only financial planner and getting an actual financial plan put together, we would love to have a free introductory call with you. And you can do that by going to physicianwealthservices.com. All right, let's jump into the interview with John McCarthy of Physician Tax Advisors and Kelly, who is a tax manager at Physician Tax Advisors. All right, Kelly, John, what's going on? How are you guys doing? Doing well. Good. So Kelly works with us. She is a tax manager at Physician Tax Advisors. And of course, you guys all know John. He was on all month of August breaking down some cool tax stuff. Surprisingly, to my amusement, everyone loved the whole month of tax. I didn't know how that was going to go over. We just tried it. But everyone said they learned a lot. We actually had a lot of questions, a lot of feedback that came in. And Maybe some of you weren't as excited to learn about tax in August. So we are going to do a recap a little bit here on some of the things that you should be doing or thinking about or organizing now that the year is done. We are in a new year. Kelly, why don't you spearhead this and tell everyone what they should be paying attention to and how they can make it easier to prepare their taxes or work with someone like you guys in preparing their taxes? Sure. So I think you kind of said it. I think. One of the greatest missed tax planning strategies is being organized. There are so many things that might be missed if you're not keeping records, if you're itemizing, you know, charitable deductions, having those receipts in line for when you go to see your tax preparer or for us, if you're uploading for us, as you know, because we're virtual, you're not coming to see us, hopefully. Or things like if you are a 1099 contractor, so you have your own business, Keeping track of those receipts, having your expenses in an Excel spreadsheet or in a QuickBooks online, something like that. Having all of that ready and organized can save you so much time and effort. You don't want to be April 14th trying to gather things, missing receipts and things like that, which are missing receipts or missed deductions for you. So I think organization is a big tax planning strategy now since the year has closed. Yeah. Miss receipts equal miss deductions equal you paid Uncle Sam more money than you had to. And guess what? They're just going to waste it. So let's not do that. Let's not pay them any more than we have to. Let's be good taxpayers and pay them, right? But let's not just offer it like charity. I'd rather you just give to charity at that point, which 
We did have a change in 2020 that John had brought up back in, in August. I know I brought it up a few times throughout the year is that with CARES, that even if you were W2 and you weren't itemizing, that you could give $300. And so this might have been the first time that someone did that. If they're working with you or, or doing it themselves, like what do they need to have in terms of that receipt or, or what would that look like? It was a pretty nice addition to the CARES Act. So even if someone's not itemizing, they can still take a $300 deduction for anything they've contributed to a charity. So for us specifically, we would like to see the receipt of that. So I know now we do a lot of donations. Maybe you're putting in a credit card online, but you have an email. That would be your email receipt showing the amount that you donated with the date on it. That would be something you'd want to keep so that we could see that you had made this donation in the year. So besides organizing, now that they're like, okay, let's say that they were, I'm going to use this liberally, that they were somewhat organized and had been keeping track of this stuff up to date. Is there other things that they could be doing to help either their prepare or to just honestly be aware of now that the new year started and they're kind of jumping into like tax mode and even financial planning mode because it's new year's resolutions, but we can stick with the tax side. Yeah. So I think one big thing that I'd want to point out for someone that is self-employed or has 1099 income, they have for certain retirement accounts, they can make a contribution up until the date that their tax return is due. So it's not as if 1231 hit and you are done tax planning. If you have 1099 income or self-employment, you still could possibly make a deductible contribution to that account. Specifically, I would speak of um, a SEP account. So if you have a SEP IRA, you actually don't even have to have the account open. You can still open the account this year and you have until the due date of your return to fund it. So if your return was due 415, but you extended, you have until the extension to fund that account as well as open it. I like to harp on that because I think a lot of people think 1231, the year's done, there's no more wiggle room, but there is specifically for that aspect. And also, even if you're a W-2 employee, there are a few options you have with IRAs. John, did you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so... You know, on the IRA side, there's a couple different types of IRAs that are available for taxpayers. And a lot of it depends on your level of income for the year. So this is where you want to either do some reading on the IRS publications or work with your tax preparer here to make sure that you don't make an excess contribution to an IRA that you're not allowed to do. But depending on the retirement plan options that you have at your workplace and potentially what your spouse has available to them, you need to make a traditional IRA deduction, which could be deductible or non-deductible, depending on your tax situation, or potentially a Roth IRA contribution as well. So once again, those all have different income limitations, and the contribution amounts are going to be different depending on your unique situation. So make sure you do some studying on that before you contribute to them. Yeah. And Kelly, you brought up a good point with the SEP concept. And I'd say like word of caution is that if you had done a backdoor Roth already for let's say 2020, and then you're now you're trying to make a SEP contribution, like that could cause some issues in there. So be careful. But if they did, you know, make any of these mistakes, like they can be unwound. It's just not fun or enjoyable to make these things, but there are strategies and everyone's situation is different. I think that point I was trying to make is really just, this is again, information. It is educational advice. This is not specific advice. And so if you've done some of these things that might make it so you cannot do some other things that we may be talking about on the show here. Is there anything else that they could be looking or thinking about doing now that we're in the new year? I did think of one thing when John was talking, as we said, with you have until the due date, 
with retirement contributions, you also have until the due date of your return to fund an HSA, which can help reduce some tax liability if you fund that up to the maximum limit. Yeah. HSAs are like one of my favorite accounts. Unfortunately, we don't have one or have the ability to use one, but they're triple tax advantage. And I've talked about it on the show before. They're fantastic accounts. So John, let's segue over a little bit to what's going on in the tax landscape with a Biden win. That could come with some potential massive changes to the tax code and what we're looking at. And I think to understand, let's start from the 50,000 foot view and cascade down. What potential changes would be coming and what should we be aware of? Yeah, so I always like when we're talking about new tax legislation is uh, kind of set the scene a little bit. And, you know, how did we get here and why are we worried about some of these issues in the first place? So obviously, we've just gone through an election period. So we have a new president that will be coming on board. And with that comes the threat of tax law changes normally. So we're fairly certain, you know, at the time we're recording this at both the presidential election and the House of Representatives, what we're not certain of currently is the Senate race. So we've got some runoff elections that are going to be happening in Georgia that are probably going to, to determine the uh, the overall uh, structure of the Senate and who will be in control of that chamber of, of Congress. So uh, one of the important things to keep in mind here is that you know, tax legislation moves a lot smoother through Congress and through the executive chamber if there is one party that is in charge of all three. So the Democrats have the presidency, they have the House, and they can gain control of the Senate. Obviously, they can push through legislation a lot easier than if they're missing one of those three components. And that's part of what we don't know today as we record this, is how the Senate races are going to end up. So I want to keep that in mind as we talk about some of this potential legislation, because some of these are big changes to tax law. And we've got to temper our expectations a little bit in that we can't necessarily count on these changes becoming law because a lot has to happen and fall into place before that would be the case. So I want to set the stage there. Beyond just the makeup of our Congress, we have to look at, you know, what is the likelihood actually that we would start with tax law changes? Once again, as we record this, we're in the middle of a COVID pandemic. We have other national priorities going on right now that perhaps aren't, I don't know if exciting is the word, Ryan, but, but may not be as exciting as changing tax policy at this point. I think he's going to be a little busy with some of the wear your damn mask policies than tax, but no, I think that's a good point. I love the back history of like, here's where we're at and why we're here, but let's assume that we're not at 100,000 deaths a day in January here as we're recording. Pandemic is starting to become under more control and that we are now addressing the tax policies that could be coming down the road. Like what do some of those policies look like? Yeah, so there's a couple of big changes in the proposed Biden plan that we wanted to go over today and talk a little bit about. So one of the first ones, and you'll see this a lot in the news media, they'll pick up on this as one of the primary changes potentially, but we'll talk a little bit about why it might not be the big one that we should be worried about. But Biden is looking at restoring the top income tax rate to 39.6%. So if you are a tax law scholar, Maybe not all of us on the John, call want to no be a tax law No one cares that much about tax <laughs> than you and maybe Kelly. And Kelly's maybe even there. <laughs> so you, no, no one reads this stuff for fun like you do, John. So right, let's right. assume that we are novices and not scholars of reading the tax code. 
as we we progress through the conversation. All right, if you insist. But uh, we're actually we're at a 39.6% rate before the TCGA, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, was passed back in 28 for the 2018 tax year. So we've been here before. It's not that it's unprecedented, but we're looking at moving from what was a tax rate under current law of 37% and moving back to the future, I would say, of the 39.6% rate. So that's one of the big changes. You'll see that picked up in the news media quite often. But as we'll discuss a little bit later, it's actually, when you look at overall tax receipts and how big of an impact this is to tax revenue for the government, this actually isn't the biggest one that we should be worried about. So at what income level, let's just say joint income, married filing jointly, like at what threshold does that actual tax rate occur? Because I think that also is helpful for everyone listening that some of you may be impacted, but not everyone. It's indexed for inflation each year. So I'm going to use round numbers here, but it'd be around $620,000 or so or over when you're looking at from a married filing joint perspective. Yeah. So a lot of you that are residents and fellows, you don't need to worry about this. A lot of you that are early career attendings in specialties that you're not either dual physician households or specialties that are not extremely high paying. Again, this won't really apply to you. Yeah. And it's a really good point, Ryan, that you make that this is supposed to be a very targeted tax increase. And, and the tagline that you'll hear the, the Democrats use is that we're not raising taxes on anybody above $400,000 of income. Now, they say that it's a little easier said than done. So there are some exceptions on where some people at a lower income level than that might get impacted. But it's fairly well crafted at this point to only be, let's say, the top five or 10% of Americans that would be impacted by this. Unfortunately, that's who's listening, right? If you're an actual <laughs> practicing physician, I think okay to be paying taxes. I don't enjoy paying taxes to understand that from a financial impact that you are considered in this like top one or 2% and that when they talk about increasing taxes, like that is you as an attending physician, that is who they're talking about. Now, again, we should all pay our fair share. I think we need roads and schools and infrastructure and police and whatever, but it's then when we make dumb mistakes with our money, like smashing all our receipts and missing deductions at the end of the tax season on April 14th, that's not a good thing. So we don't want to give them more money than we have to, but to just understand that when we see this in the media and you read about it, that they are really targeting the the upper households of income. And that is going to include almost every practicing physician. We'll go to the next big change that we're talking about at this point. And this is a change to social security tax. So you may be familiar, if you looked at your pay stubs midway through the year, you might have noticed if you're a higher income earner that social security tax stops being collected at some certain point during the year on your pay stub. Once again, this index is for inflation. I think this year was around $135,000, $137,000, somewhere around there. Tell them why that stops. Like, why does that cap hit? It's a legislative cap, basically, in that, you know, any income from wages that you earn above that level is no longer subject to Social Security tax. So that's why you see that withholding go away on your pay stub. So the big change here is that we're going to have uh, one of these things that we like to call affectionately in the tax world a donut hole issue. And what we're going to see is that people between this $135,000, let's say, rounded up to $400,000 still are not required to pay Social Security on those taxes between those two numbers. Now, what happens above $400,000 is where we get the tax increase. So 
once your wages are in excess of $400,000, that Social Security tax is going to come back like a bad dream at that level. This is the one that actually is going to have, this is basically the largest tax increase that's part of this proposed bill, uh, second only behind some corporate tax changes that they're looking at. But this one is designed to generate about over $800 billion of revenue. And it's about 30% of the overall tax increase that we're seeing with this bill is right in this one particular area. So to understand that correctly, those that make up to 135000 nothing changes. Like we're always going to be paying that in. And then any dollar you make between the one thirty-five to four hundred, there's no additional tax. Everything works just as planned currently. Nothing changes. But when you hit over 400000 that tax now comes back into play. And what's the effective rate of that tax? So it's 6.2% for employees. And then um, the employers get kicked in with that tax as well. So your employers actually pay half of your Social Security tax. So they get another 6.2% that they have to pay. So in total, it's 12.4. Yeah, to understand that from a, a private practice standpoint is that not only will this come back in and, and really affect your employees that are earning a high income wage is that now this is going to be a large expense added to, I would effectively still call you small to medium sized businesses. That is going to stink. That is a huge impact on your future cash flow, potentially investments and new hiring and everything like that. So we might see interesting compensation structure occur around this, but John, it basically just says, and there's no upwards, it isn't like scale up if you hit a million in revenue or anything like that. It's just now that you're over 400, now every dollar over that is taxed at at this new 6.2. Yeah, there's really no no high-end cap on this. I, I think what they're thinking from a legislative perspective is that anyone that gets to be, let's say, above a million dollars in wages, they probably have some room to restructure their employment agreement in such a way that they can probably do something to help alleviate anything, unless you're working for a big publicly traded company where you're making multi-million dollars uh, salary. But uh, And then I have the world's smallest violin playing for you. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the next big change that we'll talk about is a change to the capital gain and dividend rate. So this one also... Oh, my heart. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is another one that, that gets a lot of, will probably get a lot of news and media play. It's a significant change as well. Um, not quite as big as the Social Security change that we talked about that's going to generate about $800 billion of revenue. And this one's around $500 billion, let's say. Uh, so, you know, it's still a big change, but not quite as big as the Social Security and change. And I'm going to interrupt really quick. That sounds like a ton of money, right? $800 billion and $500 billion. Sounds like a ton of money. If we just add those two together and you times it by two, that's the amount of money that they injected into the economy in 2020 alone. So it sounds big. It still ain't that big. So like the idea that, oh my gosh, they're raising their taxes and this and that. Oh, look at that. We're going to be flush with cash. Like, no, no, no. We're going to still have trillions and trillions of debt. But sorry, I just want to put some perspective because those seem like massive numbers. But in reality of what they've done is not that massive. Yeah, no, that's a good point. All right. So if you make over a million dollars a year, if your income's over a million, we are going to remove what effectively for people at that level would be a 23% capital gain rate, which includes a couple of different taxes, but we'll simplify it here for, for this purpose. But 23% rate is now going to go to a 39.6% rate. So essentially what we're doing is we're saying if you make over a million dollars a year, there's really no additional incentive 
to earn income through capital gain and dividends now because we're basically taxing it at what your ordinary income rate would be. But that's only into households that make a million or more a year. So that change isn't as horrible as it sounded like it could have been when we started reading a little bit of that. Because if they did it effectively for everyone or even at the 400K level, that would fundamentally change a lot on how you invest. I mean, let's be real, though. A lot of the money that is invested is by massive entities and extremely wealthy people. So this could have fundamental impacts on the market in the short term as they try to figure out what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. Do they unwind it? Which I have a John question for you is if this does come into effect, say it's signed. I don't know. I'm just throwing out an arbitrary June 1st, 2021. Is it going to be retroactive or is it going to be taking place in a future date starting January 1st, 2022? Yeah, the answer is like all good tax policy answers is it depends. So there are a lot of options here. I would say in recent memory, Congress generally will shy away from making changes this significant on a retroactive basis. So the last time we had a major tax law change back in 2018 for the TCGA rules, uh, they did not choose to make those retroactive at that point with with some minor exceptions. I would say that Uh, They weren't necessarily retroactive, but they applied right at the date, which was in the middle of the year. So there's a couple options, Uh, full retroactive, which I would say is probably unlikely. They could also make it effective as of the date of the law passing Congress, which we like to call those things as tax accountants, full employment act for tax accountants everywhere. Because if you think taxes are complicated now, try changing all of the rules in the middle of a tax year and trying to still fit that on one year's return. So <laughs> it's yeah, possible, but uh, you know, they generally don't do that to us either. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I'm hoping that they don't bury us at the very end of the year with a 1,200 page document saying, enjoy the holidays. I'm hoping that doesn't happen again. But <laughs> Yeah. So to get to a real answer to your question, I would suspect that it would probably take place on a calendar year period and that we would be looking really at 2022 you know, if we were to see these changes, you know, these wholesale changes in, in place, but never say never. Yeah. They could come back and be like, Hey, as of January, 2021, because the pandemic wasn't enough to screw with everyone. We're going to, that's a tax code too. Uh, and just from the financial planner perspective that this, if it is really that million dollar threshold, like that will impact the markets and there will be short-term volatility. And we don't want you to trade on the short-term momentum either way or have anxiety over short-term movements, but I would expect that there will be some volatility, whether it's up or down, probably both at some point, that people will be exiting trades that they've had for long positions in order to to handle and get the lower tax rate. Because if they're sitting there with millions of dollars in gains, right? you're thinking like wealthy individuals, they're not going to be very excited to pay an extra 15% to 16% in tax just if they wait and hold out. So they'll probably recognize those gains and that might increase trading frequency and volatility. So at least you didn't crush my soul completely. But that's an interesting change. What else do we have from a change perspective? Yeah, so one of the other changes we're looking at potentially are some changes to itemized deductions. So once again, this is another one of the provisions that's only going to impact families that are making over $400,000 a year, as we've heard in other areas here of this potential tax law. And what they're looking at doing is basically giving you another haircut on your itemized deductions. So this is your mortgage interest, real estate taxes, charitable contributions. If you're making over that amount, they're basically going to say, hey, if you're in the 37% tax bracket, we're not going to give you that full credit. We're going to treat it as if you're in the 28% tax bracket. So 
they're basically haircutting the value of those itemized deductions going forward. Yeah, that hurts a little bit because that is going to impact a lot more of you listening. And that's not very fun. That's not good news, John. Yeah, and this is stacked on top of already with TCGA. A lot of you have been hit by the state and local income taxes being haircutted already to only $10,000 a year. So we still got that to deal with. And now they're saying, hey, even what's left over now is worth less potentially going forward. Yeah, I feel like 400 is frustrating, but it's probably a sweet spot for them. Do you have the numbers on how much revenue that piece would change for them with the itemized deductions? It's not insignificant. It looks like they're scorecarding that out to be about $280 billion. So, I mean, it's not a nothing. It's not as big as some of the other changes we've talked about, but it, yeah, it will hurt. Yeah. So, $800 billion, $280 billion, it's called $300 billion, $500 billion here. So now we're at $1.6 trillion. We're half of the monetary piece that they've put in just for 2020 alone. We're getting closer to being able to pay some of this money back. And that we're not even talking about potentially more stimulus. We're just talking about what's currently been put in place. Is there anything else that is majorly changing that we should really discuss on the show here? Yeah, one other item I think is worth discussing. Now, we won't hit the big one. The biggest change here is the corporate tax rate. We'll assume that doesn't apply to as many of our audience that might own a C corporation out there, but they are looking at raising that tax rate. That would produce $1 trillion of revenue. So that would get us a lot closer to the overall revenue raising of this whole bill. And to make sure like we're crystal clear on that, think of this as like much larger public corporations that you would know household brand names that they're trying to not only not give them the tax cut, but say, hey, let's time for you to pay your fair shares, they're calling it. So we're talking about potentially a trillion dollars there. So now we're at 2.6 trillion, if that actually was to take place. We don't need to unpack that one because it's not really applicable, but we're at 2.6. I'm trying to keep track of just what they're actually trying to do. So the other one that I really want to make sure we unpacked a little bit today is some changes to the estate tax rules. And these are pretty severe. We all don't like to think about the state tax, although if you have that much money to worry about it. The state tax is uh, relevant again. What are they doing? Because right now for a married couple, it's 22 million. We're not worried about estate planning at this point, but does that come into play now? That is going to come into play, I think, for a lot more people potentially. So we've got two big changes in the estate tax area that we need to be concerned about. One is we're looking at returning the estate tax exemption down to pre-TCGA levels around $3.5 million. We were at wow. 10, you know, 11. They're indexing it for inflation, putting it mm -hmm. out of reach for most of our clients. But $3 million with a physician salary is not that much. It impacts every single one of you listening right now, like, which is, again, okay. But just to be aware of like when you hear these things and you think oh, it's for the Bezos and the Gates and the Buffets of the world, it isn't. Like that estate planning actually is going to kick into every single one. I don't care if you're a pediatrician, family practice, dermatology, whatever. Every single one of you will be affected by that one if that was to take place. So amounts over that is still left in your estate at that point. The maximum rate goes back up to 45%. So estate planning is really going to be important at that point. We don't want stuff in the estate above that level because that's going to be expensive. The real kicker here, though, to be honest, and this is the first time uh, we've heard this idea floated recently, would be eliminating the tax-free step-up at death. Whoa, that's no bueno right there. Yeah, I mean, that just turns all of our conventional estate tax planning pretty much on its head. And if you haven't, once again, if this were to pass, we've got a lot of things that would have to happen before we get there. But if that does, please go see your financial planner and your lawyer, and we need to revisit 
<laughs> all of the assumptions that, that we made. We got a lot of work to do. John, I obviously understand the impact of this, but let's break that down a little bit for everyone listening. Like what, why would they need to go reach out to someone like me? Like why, what is that impact actually going to do when they change the step up? Yeah. So if you have any assets that don't pass directly to a beneficiary, like an IRA or 401k, where you generally, those assets are going to pass directly to whoever your name beneficiary is. So if you have things like your residence, or if you have a taxable stock portfolio, perhaps, generally when that stuff passes to your heirs, you're allowed to value it again at the date of death. And that becomes their new cost basis. And when we were talking about cost basis, we're saying, hey, if you were to sell it that same day and you sold the stock for $100 and the person you got it from passed away and it was worth $100 the day before, you don't owe any tax on that sale. So that step up in basis is pretty important. Yeah. So let's say mom and dad bought uh, a share of Apple back in the day for 20 bucks, and now Apple is worth $400. I don't know. Let's just throw it out there, right? you would owe a lot of tax on that one share, right? There'd be $380 of gains and we got rid of gains. Like, you know, there's this whole domino effect. But if mom and dad were to pass, the step-up basis would allow you to come and basically value it at exactly where it was when they died. So like John said, if they died and you sold the next day, there's no gain. What John is now saying is that goes away and you're going to inherit their basis, John? Yeah, they're basically eliminating the step-up in basis. And so essentially they're taxing all the appreciation. No way to get out of it anymore. Liquidate the position, right? Because most people aren't going to have that kind of money just lying around. If mom and dad or you left your kids, let's say, this kind of money, they're not likely going to have that. They'd be forced to liquidate and to do that. And this is huge tax implications, huge estate implications. It is going to potentially cause increased market volatility as the boomer age kind of gets older. Like this could have very profound effects. It sounds simple, but that to me is like the largest change, maybe not dollar for dollar, but that is the largest change from a planning perspective. Yeah, it definitely is. And unfortunately, from a tax planning perspective, there's not much we could do you know, in, the, in the near term. Did they change anything with the gifts? I haven't seen anything related to the gift tax provision. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they would weave that in and see if there's some changes related to that as well, because you'd almost expect there to be some change in those areas, but we don't have that detail yet. Because there's a lifetime cap of how much you can gift. So at some point, there might be some gifts that exchange back down to down that maybe for close or, or whatever, but this is a huge impact on taxes. Yeah. So from a tax planning side, if this comes to pass and we have a date of uh, January 1st, 2022, the only tax planning we can say is better to die in 2021 than in 2022. But that's not really popular tax advice. Kelly's face just lit up like a Christmas tree. But John, I get the joke. Tax humor. Yeah. We have like, to entertain ourselves with something here. Guys and gals, he reads the tax code for fun. So that is a good joke for John. Not going to lie. <laughs> it was uh, give it a, a five out of 10. Well, that John, that's some crazy amount of changes. Thank you for saving the big one. The knowledge makes my heart hurt a little bit. Not going to lie. At least you didn't damage it completely as we were going through all of them. But for everyone listening, like I want you guys to really be able to take home this concept is lots of things could change. We don't know where we're at. We don't know what's happening. We don't know if they're going to do it retroactive. So don't worry. There's nothing you can do. What's in is in. The policymakers are going to do their thing. But it's really helpful to understand, I think, the direction so you can be more informed. So when you hear about it on media, you read about it on a blog post or someone tweets about something stupid, 
you can at least be somewhat informed to understand, go, okay, nope, I heard this. This is affecting, it's not going to affect me. It'll affect this. At least you have some understanding on it. And I think we'll bring you guys both back on to talk more tax changes and more things as this unfolds. And I think when anything does happen to get signed into law and pass the branches and we've got more information, we'll definitely bring you guys back on. So Kelly, you're amazing. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate you and all the work you're doing with all of our clients as a tax manager at Physician Tax Advisors. And John, it's always a pleasure to have you on. So thank you both for your time. Yes. Thank you. Well, it's always fun talking tax with John and Kelly. I'm so fortunate enough that I get to talk with them every week on what our clients are doing and how taxes are evolving in this like ever-changing, crazy pace that things were happening in 2020 and now probably in 2021 with upcoming tax changes. We're going to transition over to our curbside consult and someone wasn't gracious enough to call in a fantastic question that I'll play for you guys right now. question about home sales and how this coronavirus could be affecting the housing market. I know it's unpredictable, but we know that we will have to be selling our home at the end of residency for fellowship in 2021. We could sell our home now. We do have a rental that we could move into. Right now, our house is at what we think might be the highest it will go and the interest rates are low. So our debate is to sell now and rent for a year before moving in 2021 for fellowship versus holding on to our house for comfort and security at this time and just for stability, but risking the chance that it could drop in value, interest rates could go up, and who knows what the next year will hold. And I would love your opinion. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for calling that in. I think there's a few things that we could talk about with this question. One is kind of the concept of risk versus reward. And I think this is a very, very personal decision. And it's really coming around peace of mind. You said that we think and we're pretty sure that we're at the top of the market in terms of the house. I would respectfully disagree because you don't know what's happening. We don't know if the prices are going to skyrocket 15% over the next three to six months as you are looking to unload the house and to end up moving. We don't know if it's going to drop 15 or 30%. Maybe we all go back into lockdown. The vaccines are not getting out quick enough. We have lots of issues. We never know what's going to happen. So really, this comes around peace of mind, right? Writing out the pros versus the cons. I mean, literally take a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle, write the pros of selling the house, write the cons of selling the house, whether you do it now or in six months or you keep it for a rental. And then it's really looking at it by going, do the pros outweigh the cons, right? What's the best possible economic scenario? What's the worst economic scenario that could happen? Could you live with either of those or not? And I think the second part is to your question here is coming into how COVID is going to play into selling homes. And through most of COVID, you couldn't show homes that had tenants in them. The supply was naturally lower because most people didn't want it up and move during the pandemic. And so it is very much a seller's market. And I think there's also some demand going away from the bigger cities or the more expensive states. And people are fleeing to where it's cheaper or where they don't have to commute anymore because now they're doing telecommuting. And so they can live in much cheaper areas, maybe even outside of town or completely moving up and moving to wherever they can find internet. 
Now, my opinion on what I'm seeing in the market, and I can only talk about really two markets. It's Southern California, which is where I live, and Las Vegas, which is where I'm originally from. That's where all my family is, and they're all in real estate. So I have a very deep knowledge of that market. It's where I've invested before. So I think right now, everything is very location-specific. There's houses on my street that are old. They're run down. They need to be pretty much knocked over and they're going for moon money, like just ridiculous pricing because it's a very desirable area to live in. And not everywhere in Southern California is experiencing the same thing. In Vegas, there is a ton of people that are moving from California. And right now the demand is far outpacing the supply. Therefore, the prices are moving up very quickly in that town, despite Las Vegas having being crushed with tourism and the casinos aren't even mostly open and they're having a ton of issues themselves, but outside dynamics being COVID are pushing more people to there. I was talking to my stepmom who sells high-end real estate in town. And she said that well, there was a, a hole from Silicon Valley that was a tech firm that decided that they no longer need to have a main massive headquarters in San Francisco. And so almost all the high top executives were moving into Las Vegas. She ended up selling like 15 homes or something crazy to all these guys and gals because they were moving to a state that had no state income tax. And as long as they were all on the same time zone, it worked for them. And lots of their employees were moving around, whether it's in the state or out of state, but as long as they stayed in the same time zone, no one actually cared where they lived, which is completely fascinating. And before 2020 would have been like unbelievable. No one would have been doing this. And I think so, you know, very much dependent on location. You mentioned interest rates. Yes, the interest rates are help fuel this hot market and it's making homes more affordable from a payment standpoint, even though prices are increasing. I think the other piece that most people aren't talking about is how M2 money supply has been increasing. And it's been increasing really since 2008, where we did all the bank bail-ins. But right now, 2020 had more than a 20% increase in M2 money supply. So take all the dollars in existence, January 1st, 2020, and then all the dollars in existence on January 1st, 2021. And we've increased that overall money supply by around or just over 20%, which means more money is out there to bid up all the assets in all of these different markets. That's why you see the stock market higher. That's why you're seeing real estate hitting extremely high values. That's why you're seeing gold increased pricing to almost a bubble-like proportions. That's why you're seeing Bitcoin to bubble-like proportions. All this money is out there and it's being bid up into all these different markets. So I would expect a lot of volatility going forward just in the next few years across every market, but that has to play and factor into what you're looking at from a real estate perspective. So hopefully that's helpful. I think really that's it's not going to be a worse decision or a bad decision if you decide to sell now versus in six months or even hold on, as long as the property can actually cash flow and it's in a good area that will appreciate and it's not completely run down and needing tens of thousands of dollars of work, I think you'll be okay. But those are all these different factors are at play and you guys are the only ones that can really make that decision. And I think ultimately it comes down to risk versus reward. So we've got a fun new segment that I'm going to highlight. And I've had so much fun recording some of these that we've already recorded ahead with, but it is called the financial malpractice segment. And it's going to be a bunch of financial horror stories with 
specific people in their field of specialty. So it could be with contracts. It could be with insurance. We do some with tax. We do some with financial planning. We do some with estate planning. And it is super fun to hear some of these interesting stories. Now, some of these are sad stories. Some of these have some of these have some really good outcomes and some didn't, but we are all going to be able to learn a ton from all these different stories. So I'm really excited to transition over to the financial malpractice segment. Transitioning over to our financial malpractice segment, I have the famous John Apino from Contract Diagnostics. He's our go-to guy for contracts and tough things in contracts. So I'm excited to bring him on here. You can reach out to him if you need any help with your contract at financialresidency.com slash contract. John, welcome on the show. Thanks for having me. Always love doing these. This is gonna be super fun. So what kind of horror story do you have for us in the physician contract space? So we've got lots of them. Of course, a lot of them around finances. So this one that we're thinking of today, a financial situation that a lot of physicians get into. So you know, they finish their training, they get that first job, they maybe overextend financially and don't take into account long-term planning. We had a physician client who was married to a physician. So they had a dual physician income, ended up buying that big house after they finished training and took their first jobs. Didn't worry about paying down debt, figured they had a long runway to do so, you know, leased a couple of cars. And he was in a private practice situation where he wasn't making as much maybe as in the future. And I think he had expected his income to jump 30 or maybe 40% over the years. So they expected that they could make the house payment and everything would be fine. Well, his wife ends up filing for divorce for a variety of reasons. And he ended up saying, well, in the divorce settlement, I will go ahead and I'll take the home. I'll make the payments because my income is going to go up, you know, 30 or 40% or more once he makes a partnership. And as the future is unpredictable with everything, the group ended up selling to a private equity firm. He ended up, of course, not becoming a partner, but being put on a salary and a compensation model like every other physician there. And of course, his income never went up. So he remained cash strapped, unable to pay his loans off and ended up selling the home for a loss simply because he didn't plan appropriately financially for the future. And nobody plans for divorce and nobody plans for their group selling and not making partner. But we can plan for the unexpected, I think. And this physician failed to do so. And unfortunately, the situation did not turn out well for him. He ended up having to move on from his dream home and his dream cars. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, one, that's a really poor planning aspect when you're thinking, hey, I'm going to make 30, 40% more. So I'll spend more now in order to cover the costs later. That's a tough one. Was there anything like in his contracts or could be upfront that he would have been able to put in or clause or negotiate or any piece like that would have made that more of a guaranteed piece that if he was working through and they were to sell, is that typical language? Is that kind of just how the cookie crumbled concept? There are some things that we have seen some physicians do to protect themselves in that situation. Of course, due diligence is super important as a physician's looking over their agreement and talking about their potential future with their group. And so asking them if they've ever considered selling, if they've ever been approached, if so, what would happen? How would that look? But documenting that is a thing that most groups won't go ahead and do. We did have one physician that was able to obtain a you know, language in a contract that says if the group were to sell, they would immediately become partner and be treated as such for the sale of the group. We had another physician who negotiated in their contract 
when they were told that there's no chance of selling out, he actually negotiated a, I think it was 200 or $250,000 cash payment if the group sold. And the physician was so adamant about there's no chance, there's never a chance that we're going to sell. This physician actually said, well, if that's the case, then put a cash payment in the agreement. And if you do sell, I will receive the cash payment. The physician he was joining said, sure, because he was so adamant that he wasn't going to sell. So there are some things that you can do to protect yourself in those situations. Most often, it's just doing a lot of due diligence with the group and realizing that sometimes taking a private practice offer like that, there is risk involved. But that's just the reason that you plan for risk, which means maybe you plan your financial life a little bit unique or better than this individual did. Yeah, great, great insights. Appreciate that. That definitely is a very sad story. Hopefully things have turned better for them to the positive. Not only divorce is a horrible and expensive thing, but to have loss in house and not have your career work out, that's a tough spot. So thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate you being here. For all of you listening that need help with your contracts or contract review or other peers might need that, we highly recommend to reach out to John and his team at Contract Diagnostics by going to financialresidency.com slash contract. Uh, Well, I think we had an awesome show to start off the new year, learning about some tax, seeing some horror stories around contracts, getting to help out someone with some real estate. And now we are about to hear from my little boy who is going to be earning some money for his Roth IRA by doing our disclaimer. That will be Wyatt in just a second. But before we finish out the show, thank you so much for being here. If you are new, please subscribe to the show. Please tell other physicians about the show. We are trying to hit as many physician families as we can so we can help them understand personal finance so they can get a plan together so they can understand how money is coming in and how it's going out and what their investments look like. This whole podcast is here to educate you guys on the things that you should have learned in medical school, the things that should have been talked to you in residency and fellowship, but it's never too late. So please enjoy the show. Thank you so much for being here. And if you have any questions at all, I would love to highlight them on there, just like we did for someone else that called in an anonymous question in our community. And you can do that by going to financialresidency.com slash question. All right, Wyatt, take it away, bud. This is for entertainment purposes only. Do not take this as investment advice. My dad is only a fiduciary for his clients. Have a great day. Bye. 